On this episode of This Week in Linux, we've got so much news to cover, it's kind of ridiculous. We've got a new kernel release with Linux 5.7. SpaceX used Linux to send NASA astronauts into orbit. KDE released the latest version of their Plasma desktop environment with Plasma 5.19. We've got a lot of hardware news to cover this week because Pine64 announced that the Pine tab is now available for pre-order. Lenovo announced that they will certify their full ThinkPad line for Linux. And System76 announced that they have a new 12-core AMD Ryzen-powered laptop with a serval. Ridiculous amount of news, and that doesn't stop there. Linux Mint has been in the news this week with a controversial topic related to Snaps and Chromium. We'll talk about that. Destination Linux is a podcast that I'm a co-host of, and we had a live stream this week at the Southeast Linux Fest Conference, or Self-Conference, PeerTube announced the release of version 2.2.0, which brings some much-needed improvements to this YouTube alternative software. And I found some really interesting projects this week that we're going to be talking about. The first being a project called Wayless, which lets you use a touchscreen tablet as a drawing tablet in Linux. The other being a Linux distro with a Python user land. And this this distro is called Snakeware. All that and much more is coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network, and this is your weekly source for Linux GNUs. A first in the show this week is the project that this show gets its name from, and that is the Linux kernel. So Linux 5.7 has been released, and this has almost 14,000 non-merge commits from close to 2,000 developers. So a non-merge commit is more of like basically saying actual code versus like if you compare a merge commit, that's where you take the code from some other piece and then apply it to the main chain, and that creates another commit. But if you want to say, you know, non-merge commit, it means not counting those types of commits. Anyway... So, in 5.7, there's a lot of new stuff and improvements to a variety of different things. And first of all, we have a new XFAT file system driver that improves the support for XFAT, which is the Windows uh, disk encrypted data file system. So it makes it possible to use that. And this is thanks to Samsung, because Microsoft did create their own driver, and it was classified as crap by various different kernel developers. So Samsung decided to fix it for Microsoft because apparently they can't make a driver for their own file system. Better touchscreen support for older Intel tablets has been added and also driver for supporting Apple USB fast charge capabilities has been added to 5.7. Support for EFI mixed mode booting has been added, allowing 64-bit x86 kernels to be booted Uh, from 32-bit firmware running on 64-bit capable CPUs. So that's a lot to say. Also, support for the notion of thermal pressure is uh, is available now, and this uh, allows the task scheduler to take better scheduling decisions in the face of CPU frequency changes, which is to basically say the key benefit is better performance when CPUs are overheating. And also, there's better HDR and OLED display support. So, for example, the uh, the AMD GPU Linux driver that deals with modern OLED and HDR displays, which allows for managing backlight brightness using the display port aux channel and adds panels self-refresh functionality. Now we're going to move on to graphics as well. We have Intel Tiger Lake Gen 12 graphics are now enabled by default and being 
deemed stable enough for out-of-the-box support. And also AMD Ryzen 4000 series Renor. I think that's how you're supposed to say it. I'm not sure. Mobile graphics support is in good shape and is running great, as they say. While this support isn't technically new for either the Intel uh, Tiger Lake or the Ryzen 4000, it is no longer behind a kernel flag that requires you to have special stuff to get it to work. So, uh, the next thing and the last thing we're going to talk about for this particular release of the Linux 5.7 kernel is the support for new ARM architecture-based devices and system-on-a-chips, including Qualcomm Snapdragon 865, NXP-i.mx8m+. Just rolls right off the tongue. And the next one's going to as well, the MediaTek MT8516 SOC, system-on-a-chip. Also is a Pine64 Pinebook Pro laptop, Pine tablet, PineTab tablet, and the PinePhone mobile phone are also getting better support with the Linux, Linux 5.7 release. And all kinds of other stuff is being done in this one. And instead of going through like everything, because there's so much, I'm going to just leave it right there and put a link in the show notes for if you'd like to learn more about it from the awesome website, Kernel Newbies, because they make it a lot more easy to understand what's going on in the various releases of the Linux kernel. So check that out in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have some space news. And that is uh, Elon Musk's private space company, SpaceX, has made history, basically, by launching a pair of NASA astronauts into orbit, making it the first private manned spacecraft ever and the first U.S. manned space flight in nine years. It successfully delivered NASA astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley, sorry if I pronounced your name wrong, Bob, into orbit and on board using the SpaceX Falcon 9, which was powered by, of course, rocket fuel and Linux. So, we actually got some information a couple years ago related to the software engineers at SpaceX. So, they explained how the Falcon 9 programming works. And they said at the time, we work on everything from large-scale web applications to tiny embedded computing platforms. We build tech stacks and C-sharp, MVC4, EF, MS, SQL via REST to JavaScript, uh, handlebars, less, and a bunch of other stuff, including C++, embedded Linux, Python, and more. And he says, and they say together, all together enables us to build, launch, and monitor stuff that goes into space. The flight software team is about 35 people, and they write code for Falcon 9, Grasshopper, which is like test rocket for Falcon 9, and Dragon applications. And they do the core platform work also on the vehicles, and they say that they also write simulation software and a bunch of other stuff, and they do this work in Mission Control to support active missions as well. And according to ZDNet, the Falcon 9 flight software was written in C and C++, and it was running on a stripped-down Linux version. Uh, basically, I think it's three ordinary dual-core x86 processors where the flight software itself runs separately on each processor, which is pretty interesting because you might be wondering why three processors to do this. And they explained that SpaceX uses an actor-judge system to provide safety through redundancy, essentially. In this system, every time a decision is made, 
It is compared to the results from the other cores. If there is any disagreement, the decision is thrown out and the process is restarted. It's only when every processor comes up with the same answer that a command is sent to the, the PowerPC microcontrollers. That way, if there is, like, the goal is to have the automation be tracking, testing itself so that when it makes the decisions, it has three different computers that have agreed upon this particular thing, task and therefore more likely to be the correct task. The, and also, if you're not aware, the International Space Station switched from Windows to Linux many years ago, actually in 2013. So the rocket that sent the astronauts to the International Space Station was running Linux, and the International Space Station that they're going to is running Linux. So all kinds of awesome stuff. And it's pretty interesting that this hardware is using really old hardware. I mean, it makes sense because, you know, space is very important thing so they have to do a lot of testing and over many years to make sure that the things that they are using is the is a, something that should be used so they're using pretty old hardware it's not like hardware you can get from amazon newegg or best buy or anything like that so it's like i mean i guess you could have gotten that years ago or you might be able to get them from like you know used or whatever anyway it's kind of interesting because they use such old hardware that maybe these 32-bit distros that are kind of going out of usage in the ecosystem could kind of rebrand themselves as spaceship compatible or like for space exploration distribution or something like that. I don't know. Or just stop making 32-bit distros. That might not help for the space exploration, though. Well, that is a paradox that we live in. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about the SpaceX... Uh, a mission that used Linux. I'll have a link to, actually a couple links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. DigitalOcean also recently announced some new features and services that I want to talk about. For example, Virtual Private Cloud, or VPC, is now available in all reasons, reasons, regions free of charge. This lets you create multiple private networks to isolate your workloads. They've also added a container registry, which is now available for all users. And this easily allows you to easily store and manage private container images and push images seamlessly to DigitalOcean's Kubernetes. You can now also get some new quick install droplets through their marketplace because they've added a couple that are really interesting. For example, a Zoom alternative for web conferencing called Jitsi. And the other one is if you want to run your own Minecraft server, you now can do it with just a couple clicks and with less than a minute spin up time. Really, really cool. And you can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. But it doesn't stop there. You can get started on DigitalOcean for two months for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, that's DLN as in Destination Linux Network. So by going to do.co slash DLN, you'll be letting them know that you came from us and that you appreciate them supporting this channel and this podcast because it is a very important thing that they're helping us make this show possible and if you let them know that you are thankful for them to do that and especially if you want to use DigitalOcean anyway you could do, go to do.co slash DLN to let them know you appreciate them sponsoring this podcast and get yourself a $100 credit for two months for free and thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring This Week in Linux 
Up next on the show is the latest release of KDE Plasma, and that is Plasma 5.19. Now, this is mostly an improvements version where they just kind of fixed the paper cuts that existed in the Plasma desktop. So they called it uh, Polished Plasma. Well, not necessarily. They didn't really call it that, but that's what they said that they could have done it if they used alliterative code names or whatever. But they said uh, this that the KDEs prioritized making plat- uh, Plasma more consistent, correcting and unifying designs of widgets and desktop elements, and they worked on giving you more control over your desktop by adding configuration options to the system settings and improved usability. So there's they've actually done a lot of cool stuff, and some things that are very minimal and simplistic things that I think are quite good and are fantastic. I mean, I kind of wish they hadn't taken so long, but it's here now, and that's awesome. So... For example, you can have the t- icon task or the tasks. The icons only task manager is now used by default, so it looks more modern rather than the you know re- really long text for it like Windows Vista era type of stuff. So the much more modern style of using the icons and the doing the grouping system is a lot better and very very good decision on that. As well as this, there's this thing that um that. Okay, I admit this is weird and not that important, but I have for many years wanted to be able to center widgets on the panel for the Plasma panel. Now, it is technically possible, but anytime you add a new widget, it cre- it makes a breakpoint of the where that position is because they didn't have the ability to automatically center based on the available space because the spacer system, while having a flexible functionality didn't really work that well so it didn't have a center point and now they have actually in 5.7 fixed this panel spacer issue so they say that the invisible element that helps place components in the panel can now automatically center widgets which is something that is not that important but I really like and I'm happy that they have added it because it does make it much cleaner and easier to do certain types of workflows which I'm happy to see because that's a workflow that I use. So thank you very much for doing that. Anyway, Plasma 5.19 also incorporates a consistent design and header area for system tray applets as well as notifications. They've actually also done some stuff so GTK3 apps immediately apply a new selected color scheme. And they've fixed some issues with GTK2 apps not ha- not using the correct colors. And they've increased the default fixed width font size from 9 to 10 for better readability which is nice because I personally change it to 10 myself, so it's really cool that they added it by as a default. And there's a lot of other stuff they did, like they refreshed the look of the media playback applet in the system tray. They've done some improvements to the notifications widget. The task manager tooltips have been overhauled. The system monitor widgets have all been rewritten from scratch. They've even done some stuff to the sticky notes widget, so it now has like some usability improvements. Like a lot of stuff have been added for... KDE Plasma, including stuff for Wayland and X11 and all kinds of stuff. So if you want to learn more about this, I mean, I could go into this huge rant of all these different things, uh, but they've they've redesigned stuff like the Info Center has been redesigned. They've made improvements to KSysGuard, which is a system monitor, making it possible to see more than 12 CPU cores. If you have a monster machine, uh, you know, you could now see all your cores where it wasn't previously possible to do that. So many great stuff, improvements to Discover and KWIN Window Manager. So many good things. 
I think this is one of the nicer releases for KDE Plasma because of this polished aspects of it, because they are focusing on fixing little tiny issues that are now much more clean and a better cohesive design. And I think there are still problems with Plasma. I'm not going to pretend that it's perfect. It's not, but it is a lot better with this latest release. So I applaud the KDE team for making this, this, this these improvements and hopefully they will continue to do all this great work and um, stop using single click by default. It's silly. It's a nonsense decision. And you should switch to double click by default because millions of users from from Windows are going to be switching to it, expecting it to work that way. And then go, you can't even get the mouse to work right. I mean, psh, why would I use this? So fix that, please. Single click by default is a terrible, terrible default. With that said, KDE Plasma 5.19. And if you'd like to learn more about it, I'll have a link in the show notes below. Up next in the show, Pine64 has announced that the Pine Tab, their new tablet, is now available for pre-order, which is awesome. So the Pine Tab is a Linux tablet from the Pine64 company and is now available for pre-order for only $100 or $99.99 for the base tablet. But if you want to get the a detachable or detached backlit keyboard, you can spend uh, basically $120 to get that. So it's an additional $20 to get the keyboard, which I think is definitely worth getting because of the other stuff it adds. But having a key, having a tablet is cool. Having a, a keyboard attachment for the tablet is even better because it allows you to use the tablet as a tablet when you want it to be and as a uh, sort of like a pseudo computer when you want to use a computer style, especially considering it is using the um, Ubuntu touch OS from UbiPorts make using the Lomiri GUI. So this makes it kind of like having a tablet hybrid style computer lightweight thing. It, it's it's pretty cool. And but they, uh, Pine64 does give you a little bit of a caution to say that please note that the OS build is still in a beta stage and while most core functionality does work, some elements still remain a work in progress. So for those who are not familiar with the Pine tab, it is a, a it's a tablet that is made for Linux, and it is made from the Pine64 company, which is also the people who make the Pinebook Pro and the Pine Phone, and are working on the Pine Time smartwatch and a bunch of other stuff. Really big fan of Pine64. Uh, people might consider me a fanboy of them, and I would have to agree because very cool stuff. And they do it for ridiculously cheap prices, like that $120 with the keyboard and the tablet. That's a really good price. We'll get to why in a minute, though. So, or, or, you know, not as a bad thing. How The reason they do it. Anyway, so the Pine tab comes with a backlit keyboard, as I said, but it also acts as kind of a cover and even has the ability to kind of stand uh, stand up the tablet in a, in a nice, um, you know, stand. well, it's a stand-up tablet uh, feature as well, so it's not just a keyboard. It also is a cover and a stand. And... The display for this tablet is a 10.1-inch display with HD IPS capacitive touchscreen using a 1280 by 800 pixels with a 16 by 10 ratio ratio resolution. The hardware in the tablet is for the chipset of an all-winner A64, and this uses a CPU as a 64-bit quad-core 1.6, no, sorry, 1.2 gigahertz ARM Cortex-A53 the GPU is a Mali 400, 
and the memory is using a 64-bit eMMC module, which is replaceable, and that is awesome. Uh, they also have a the RAM at 2 gigabyte LP DDR3 SD RAM, and an expansion bay for or expansion port for micro SD card support for SDHC and SDXC, up to two terabytes of storage on those SD cards. That is very very cool. Now it does have a front facing and a back facing camera, but those cameras are not necessarily meant to be the greatest thing, which is also true for pretty much every tablet. No tablet really has that good of a camera. So uh, we're just going to move on from that. But they do have something that is very important, very, very important. It has speakers on the tablet and, and 3.5 millimeter headphone jacks, which has microphone support. So it uses a courage jack. It's fantastic because for some reason, so many different products that are smart based or smart phone, smart tablet, or whatever, are removing something so fundamentally important as a headphone jack, but hey, whatever. But in this case, they did not do that, so thank you, Pine64, for understanding the importance of the Courage jack. (laughs) Anyway, this comes with uh, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, a bunch of other stuff. It even has, not only does it have USB or micro-USB OTG port, which means on-the-go, it also has a full uh, USB-A type port that has the ability for a 2.0 docking ability as well. And it even has HD video out support through that OTG cable. So very cool. In addition to all of this stuff, it even has a significantly large battery of a 6,000 milliamp hour battery. And... The final thing I want to tell you about it is not only is it a cool product and it has a really good price, the Pine64 company is doing these things as like a community service stuff. So they even say, we are offering the Pine Tab at this price as a community service to Pine64 communities. So they're not really even making money, much money, if any money at all, for the price they're putting the Pine Tab out for. They're just kind of covering the cost. And I think that is an awesome, awesome thing for a company to do that. And they basically do that for the phone as well and the Pinebook Pro. I think the Pinebook, no, the phone, they made $10 on. So they sell it for $150 and it costs them $140 to make it. But then they take that money from the phone and then do like a funding to give people Pinebook Pros who are in need of it. And also, in some cases, they send money to upstream to like UB ports and the postmarket OS and those kinds of projects. So it's like they, they make a little bit of money and then they don't keep it. So Pine64 is awesome. And I don't know how they, how it really functions and how that all works, but the fact that they do that is amazing. And I applaud them for everything they keep coming out with. And I can't wait to get my hands on the Pine tab. So if you'd like to learn more about this, I have a link to their announcement for this in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we got some more awesome hardware news, and that is from Lenovo. So Lenovo says that they are planning to certify their complete ThinkPad and ThinkStation workstation portfolio for Linux. So this is pretty awesome. This means the ThinkPad P-Series in particular is what they plan to certify in the complete ThinkStation lineup. So for top Linux distributions, not just, we talked about previously that Lenovo announced they're going to have support for Fedora, but it also means they're going to be having support for a variety of different things, including Ubuntu, Red Hat, and more. 
So they say the top Linux distributions. They don't say specifically which ones, but they're saying the top ones. So we'll see exactly what that means. But the fact that they're putting this effort in is awesome. So Rob Herman, the general manager of exe- the general manager of the executive directory workstation and client AI group at Lenovo. Wow, that's a long title. Put it simply, uh, when we said, uh, when he said, I'm sorry. When he said more than 250 million computers are sold each year and net market share reports that 2.87%, roughly 7.2 million users, are using those computers to run Linux. It was announced back in April that Lenovo would begin shipping with the Fedora, like I said, but now that's been expanded into more distributions. So Lenovo says that Lenovo workstations will work intuitively with the host Linux OS and offer full end-to-end support, from security patches and updates to better secure and verify hardware, verified hardware drivers, firmware, and BIOS optimizations. No tweaking and compiling to get things to like fingerprint readers to work, sound devices, Wi-Fi, all that stuff to work. What's more is that Linux, or not, sorry, that Lenovo will also upstream device drivers directly to the Linux kernel to help maintain stability and compatibility throughout the life of the workstation. This thing, that is awesome. They're doing the certifications to make sure their support is there is fantastic by itself. Making sure that they're upstreaming the drivers to the Linux kernel so that it is available in potentially other distributions, not just the ones that they're certifying, is even better. This is just great. Great news. So, Lenovo and has like this uh, the certified portfolio of workstations will be available full with uh, fully customizable and configured to order starting this month, rolling out over summer, starting with the ThinkPad P series mobile workstations, including full web support, dedicated Linux forums, configuration guidance, and more. So they're not even just talking about seven certifications; they're going all out on treating Linux as a first class citizen, which is awesome. So there's a lot of different companies that do stuff for Linux and, you know, it's not just a Linux adding uh, or just a vendor adding support for Linux as an option. They're clearly investing into it and they're doing like a full approach to it. So uh, Lenovo is joining the likes of like other manufacturers such as Dell and HP to having support, but it, it feels like Lenovo is going farther because not only are they doing as support for it. They're also adding to, you know, the full ad- approach to, to the overall community support and that kind of thing and making sure there's like an easy website to use. Whereas, you know, Dell kind of dabbles a little bit and then pushes forward after many, many years. Lenovo's just saying, yeah, we're going all out. So that's really cool. Now, hopefully it convinces other companies like Dell and HTP to go even farther and other companies like Toshiba or, or Acer or whatever to start pushing Linux as well, because the more companies and manufacturers that have Linux as an option by default, the better for the ecosystem it will be. So I'm excited about this news. And we also got some interesting uh, response from System76. So when they were asked about the Lenovo news, they said that this is yet another proving point that Linux is making waves and is in a very positive way. System76 says, we're excited to see more companies embracing Linux as a solution. Since a rising tide rises all boats or raises all boats, we're also looking forward to the competition. More players means we all have to work harder to make even better products. And on that note, we're going to continue to lead the open source wave with revolutionary laptops, desktops, and servers for customers in need of out-of-the-box Ubuntu and Pop! OS support. So, very, very cool news. And I also like the fact that System76 takes this as a motivational thing so that they can do better for their own products. And we're going to talk about one of those products 
right now. And that product is System76 new AMD Ryzen laptop option called the Serval WS. Now they've had the Serval WS for a few years now, but this is the the, 22, the 2020 model is the first to be powered by AMD Ryzen chips rather than Intel processors. So very very cool as a fan of amd i use amd both as my cpu and my gpu this is an exciting information for, for me this is an exciting announcement and they say that servals offers desktop caliber performance and a mobile chassis powered by amd's ryzen 3000 series which is their latest desktop chip based on amd zen 2 that's right this is a laptop that using is using a desktop cpu so this is ridiculously powerful cpu i'm not really sure how they're able to make it work in terms of like the like i i know amd has done a lot better in their uh, thermal uh, performance and making sure it doesn't overheat as much as like the intel cpus do now and that kind of thing so i'm pretty i'm really interested to see how well like the benchmarks work with having a desktop version the processor from the amd ryzen series having that in a laptop model that is Pretty, pretty interesting. So, so pricing starts at $1,299, but it's interesting because they're also offering financing. So if you want to get it, you can get it for as low as $73 a month by filling out the credit application thing. And this is really cool because it has all this, all the options for their AMD stuff. So let's talk about those processor options. So they come with, they all come with third gen AMD Ryzen series. So this has the Ryzen 5 3600, which is a 3.6 up to 4.2 gigahertz processor with six cores and 12 threads. They also have the Ryzen 7 3700X, which is a 3.6 up to 4.4 gigahertz, eight cores, 16 threads. And the Ryzen 9 Pro 3900, which is 3.1 up to 4.3 gigahertz, 12 core, 24 threads processor. So very, very powerful. And I am very interested to see what people think about the how it works inside of the laptop. So if you do purchase this, you do decide to purchase this laptop, please let me know what your experience is with it because it does sound pretty, pretty awesome. So this this laptop has a 15.6 inch full HD sub display, which is a matte display, and uh, full HD by the way means 1080p, so 1920 by 1080. And they have two options for the graphics card. You can get the NVIDIA GeForce GTX 1660 Ti or the RTX 2070 for higher performance and the stuff like tensor cores and ray tracing and all that kind of stuff. So this comes with the ability to have the upgrade of the RAM to 64 gigabytes dual channel DDR4 and a bunch of other stuff like, you know, it has two M.2 SATA and also PCIe NVMe supports. I'm not sure if they're both. I think I think one is SATA and one is NVMe. I'm not sure about that part, but very cool that they have the ability to do that. And uh, it's it should be like a standard and the laptop should just come with NVMe in general now just because it's it's awesome. I learned that thanks to uh, Ryan from Hardware Addicts. So if you haven't checked out Hardware Addicts, you should definitely do that because we have a, another podcast on the Destination Linux Network. It is hosted by myself, Ryan, and Wendy. And I would I shouldn't have said it's hosted by me as the first person because I don't know that much about hardware in general. So I'm more of the uh, color commentator or the um, comic relief, I guess. I Well... They, he refers to me as the hardware Padawan, so that's more accurate to what I am on that show. But if you want to learn more about NVMEs, we talked about that NVMe versus M.2 
on a previous episode of Hardware Addicts. I'll have that linked in the show notes below if you'd like to learn more. And also, if you'd like to learn more about this particular laptop, the Serval WS from System76, I'll have a link to that in the show notes below as well. Up next in the show is some interesting news, real kind of like drama in the Linux world. So it's basically Linux Mint versus Snaps uh, to a point. Well, specifically Chromium Snap, but mostly Snaps. So Linux Mint said some interesting things about Snaps and what Ubuntu decided to do in regards to moving their maintenance of Chromium as a dev package into Chromium as a Snap package. And they used some strong words such as like forbidding Snaps being installed through apt or calling the act of installing Snaps via apt as a backdoor and uh, a bunch of stuff. So... This is going to be a long topic, and now that I think about it, you know what? This whole topic is kind of crazy, and there's a lot to unpack. I've uh, I've gotten information from you know the, the blog post from Linux Mint, also a response from Canonical, and in fact, not only just Canonical as the company, but we also got some responses from Mark Shuttleworth. So this would take a very long time to cover as an individual topic. So instead of doing that and having the basically the whole show be this topic, uh, we're going to go ahead and break this out as its own video, and I will be covering it that way so that we can focus on to better cover the topic overall. So stay tuned to the the channel, I guess, is what I'm saying. So if you haven't subscribed to the, ch- to the channel, be sure to do that because later this week, probably Thursday, maybe Friday, but hopefully Thursday I plan to have it out where I'll be talking about this particular topic in a lot more detail than is available to be covering on this show. So if you'd like to learn more and my opinion about this topic, by the way, I do not agree with Linux Mint. I actually completely disagree with Linux Mint. So if you want to learn more about why, be sure to subscribe to the Detux Digital channel. From there, let's jump to the housekeeping section. So Destination Linux, if you're not familiar, is a podcast that I am a co-host of. I host it with Ryan and Noah, and we do uh, a lot of different topics. We It's mostly a conversational podcast, and we have a lot of fun on it. So if you haven't checked it out, be sure to do that. And if you'd like some suggestions of what episodes to check out, there is episode 175 where we did an interview with Marius and Dalton of UbiPorts that make Ubuntu Touch, Lomiri, and, and, and also work on the Pine tab that we discussed previously and that kind of thing. So if you want to learn more about that, check out episode 175. We also have episode 176, which we give our opinions on what we think are the best beginner distributions to check out. And 177, we talk about our favorite hardware to use on Linux. And I also ask a question to the community about monitor arms and what you think of the best way to approach a triple monitor setup, whether I should get individual monitors or I should get a single or well, you gotta get individual monitors. I meant individual monitor arms or a single monitor arm that has three different three different arms that attachment. So if you have an opinion on that, be sure to check out that episode and let me know in the comments below on that episode or even below here because I kind of said the question here, but you know that anyway so destination linux 178 is also coming out soon we discuss something i think you'll be very intrigued by and that is the main topic for the episode where we say everyone should use ubuntu studio and then we explain why we think that so if you are interested in learning what that means check out the episode 178 that's coming out this week on wednesday of this week and if you uh, can't wait to check that out, which you shouldn't because you should check out the other episodes as well. 175, 176, 177, and 
as many other ones as you want because Destination Linux is a fantastic podcast and it's not because I'm on it that therefore I'm biased, but because, well, I guess I am biased, but it's still a fantastic podcast. And speaking of completely unbiased, awesome content, if you'd like to help me make this content, then please become, consider becoming a patron of Tux Digital. Because if you'd like, you can make this show possible by becoming a patron, and by doing so, you are directly helping me finance the creation of this show and all the other content on the channel. You also get special rewards like joining me in the monthly patrons chats, and we also have uh, your n- new special thing. If you'd like to join Destination Linux as a patron, you can, by becoming a a patron of Tux Digital, you also get a, be- a special bonus perk by getting the ability to join us live on Destination Linux. So be sure to check out the show Destination Linux, find out why that's awesome. And again, I'd like to thank all of the patrons of Tux Digital, all 83 of you. Thank you so much for helping make this content possible. It is it means the world to me, and I just want to thank you a thousand times, basically. So I don't think there's a way for me to thank you enough, but I will keep trying. Every episode, because that's how important it is to me, let you know that I am very grateful and appreciate all the stuff you're helping me do to make this possible, to make the channel possible, and thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Up next in the show is the latest update for PeerTube, which is 2.2.0. So they've added a lot of important features in this one, a lot of cool uh, options and improvements, and we're going to cover a few of these, and then we're going to talk about the roadmap for the next version of PeerTube, which is I think PeerTube 3 is like the major version. Yeah, version 3 will be what we're going to talk about after that. So first of all, with 2.2.0, they have added support for 4K transcoding, the ability to set to private a public or unlisted video or video playlist, which is fantastic. And they've added support for different languages like Finnish, Greek, and Scottish Gaelic. They've added support for basic plugins and theme support. Now, this is in beta right now, but they're working on improving that for the future. And they've added the ability to upload audio files to PeerTube so that now it will take an audio file and a thumbnail and create a video for you automatically when you upload the audio file. Very cool. I'm not sure if they're just going to take the thumbnail and doing nothing special on it or they're going to do like a waveform or something. They haven't said that specifically yet, but still very cool allowing you to set up the uh, uploads for audio files. They also improved the registration system with a multi-step registration, making it a lot uh, better flow to signing up for a PeerTube instance. Very good. It's not necessarily that important to cover like the details of what they're doing here, but it's still good that they're doing it because making it more simple and a better workflow in order to get into PeerTube is very important because PeerTube is a little bit problematic, and we'll get to more of that later on in this topic when we get to the roadmap part. But another thing that they added was something that I two a couple things that I've been waiting for for a very long time. You can now set specific timestamps timestamps for the links when you share it with people, and it will automatically start playing the video at that timestamp. Very, very good, very awesome. And they also set up specific subtitles by default, so you can actually you can control that. So you can say that you want to use certain types of subtitles for different languages by default. And based on your instance, of course. And also, I think your video can choose it. I'm not sure about which, how far that permission setting goes. But another thing that they added, which I think is very, very important, is the ability for video owners to delete comments. Yes, right. You couldn't delete comments prior. If you clicked the hide comment, it would just hide it to you so you didn't see it. But anybody on your channel or looking at your video would see those comments. 
and I think that was not very good. So I'm really happy that they have added the ability to delete comments as a video owner. So thank you, thank you very much. And a quick warning for those who are sysadmins of a PeerTube instance, they do say that there are some breaking changes, so you might wanna check the upgrade notes and release notes for that information if you are a instance sysadmin. So now let's move on. We're gonna talk about the roadmap for PeerTube because they have a lot of exciting things that they're planning for uh, version three and including, well, there's something super interesting as step four, but I don't want to tell you about it yet because we're going to cover step one, two, and three first. So they're doing this, the the uh, crowdfunding uh, efforts and, and they're talking about the roadmap of what they're planning to do. And they're saying like how long it will take, how much money it will cost to get to these sections. So once they get enough money, Here's what the steps they are doing. They're actually going to be doing, trying to do, they're trying to raise funds to uh, de- uh, f- to pay for the development of Peer 2, but they also said that they're going to be doing it anyway, and I'll get to that in a minute though. But starting with step one, global search is going to be happening in June. Search through the Fediverse, ability to create indexes and more. And they're saying that This is the description of this particular step. They say, searching for videos on PeerTube instance can be frustrating for viewers who just want to get access to the content without having to wonder who's federated with who. Now, could be frustrating is a very big understatement because it is incredibly infuriating. Because if you don't know what instance the the creator is on, you can't find the video. And that's not very good. So if I'm on one PeerTube instance and I search for something and they're on another PeerTube instance, I will not find it. That is not ideal at all, and they are addressing that, which is awesome. So they say the first step of this roadmap, we will create a globalized video index to make it easier to search through content through the whole federation. Thank you. Thank you. This is awesome because this is something that has been needed for a very long time, and I am really happy to see that they are doing it. Thank you because global search is not only important, in my opinion, for PeerTube to even gain any traction or reasonable amount of traction for mainstream level, it requires having a global search. So thank you for doing that. The next step is the moderation step for step two, and that is improving uh, the moderation for getting feedback on reports, uh, sharing a blacklist for making improvements to spam. And they say that they're going to be adding stuff from uh, reports monitoring to fighting spam and also even moderation history. So you can see who did what. Very cool. All that stuff is important, just as important as deleting comments. And step three, they are adding a plugins and playlist system, which is awesome because the uh, plugin system will give you options for doing like annotations and all kinds of stuff for promotion and whatnot. And uh, they say that in the description for this particular step, they say that we want to improve the display of PeerTube's video playlists. The goal is to allow video creators to more easily embed playlists into their websites as well as their social media threads. In addition, we want to make it easier to contribute to PeerTube's code. To this end, we'll be improving the plugins system, which is very cool. Now, now we're on step four. This is the big one. This is the one that's incredibly exciting that I've had so many questions about. How do I get this to do a self-hosted instance or self-hosted solution for this particular feature? How do I get it? Now, if you're looking at the visuals, you probably already know what I'm going to talk about. But if you haven't, if you're listening to the podcast, I'm finally going to tell you, and that is live streaming. They are making it possible to do peer-to-peer live streaming. But you know, there's 
so many people who want this. They also say they're going to have post-live publishing. So after the publishing or after the streaming is complete, you could then take that and turn it into video that can be published, which is awesome. So in their description for this, they say live peer-to-peer video streaming. We ran some tests. We know that that is a big undertaking, but we are confident that we can do it. They say that uh, they do have a little warning, though. They say be careful uh, with a single full-time developer on this project. We will not program the Twitch killer or anything that's as fun as the Insta Lives in just two months. If you were expecting live chat modules, funny animated GIFs, and stuff like that for like on-screen pop-ups and stuff like Twitch has, then you'll probably be disappointed. But this is awesome because live streaming is very important to, well, just the going forward in the platform of media creation. So having an instance of self-hosted ability to do live streaming is just fantastic. I mean, there are other options to do live streaming in certain ways, but they're not very straightforward and they're not in an instance style. You just kind of have to put piecemeal together. This having it kind of built into a PeerTube instance is very, very cool. So well done on making that one of your uh, part, part of your roadmap. I'm happy to hear that. They also say regarding the thing I said earlier about whether they get the donations or not, they're still going to be doing it. So they say, given the current current, current climate, Fram- Framasoft, the people who make PeerTube, has stated that they will not be imposing conditions on the roadmap. So they say, well, okay, I'm going to paraphrase what they said because, well, anyway, essentially they say if we do not get 60,000 euros, they're still going to be con- con- committed to developing PeerTube V3, even if... They say, they say, even if we need to take money from the donations made to the association to support all of their projects, while they will still need to find the 60,000 euros somewhere, they will. They say that they will find it some way. So I'm happy to see that they're putting in the, um, the guarantee that they're going to be doing it regardless because these things are super excited and I hope that they do it. Uh, but if you would like to contribute to the crowdfunding, I'll have a link in the show notes below for the PeerTube instant stuff and their uh, crowdfunding thing. So uh, updates for the 2.2.0 information release notes will be there, as well as the roadmap link if you'd like to contribute to the fundraiser or the crowdfunding. And yeah, so PeerTube is a really interesting thing, and I hope they do well in the sense, but you know, the live streaming thing is definitely the most interesting thing to me. So if you'd like to learn more about it, We'll have a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is Wayless. This is a really interesting project because Wayless, they say Wayless turns your tablet or smartphone into a graphic tablet touchscreen for your computer. They say, while the host machine requires some setup, no apps except the modern web browser are required on your tablet. This is really, really interesting. Essentially, if you've ever heard of a Wacom tablet, it's a thing that's, that people, that artists use for digital drawing that they can basically kind of draw on this tablet and then it will display on the digital version in the screen. And they're talking about making a existing tablet that's like an Android tablet or whatever to be able to do this through a stylus that you have for that tablet. And that is awesome. So if you don't have a tablet, if you have a tablet that's a touchscreen type type tablet and you would like to do drawing, this project seems to be doing that. There are some things to talk about in a minute, but first of all, talk about the features. So the following features are available for all operating systems. They also have features that are specific to other things, but for all features are being able to control your mouse with your tablet, being able to mirror your screen to your tablet, and then there's also features that are specific to Linux because this is a Linux-focused project 
which is awesome to see. So this, the Linux features are support for a stylus pen that supports pressure and tilt. It has multi-touch support. Try it with like, they say that software would support multi-touch like Krita and do a kind of test out the drawing for it, which is very cool because the, the pressure sensitivity allows you to control how large the drawing area is. So you, the harder you push, the more it, like the larger the uh, area is. Though I would say don't push it super hard because, you know, it's not an actual drawing tablet, but there you go. But it supports pressure and tilt. Very cool. They've had, they have support for capturing specific windows and only drawing to those windows. Having, uh, they actually have screen mirroring, and they say that it has the ability to do for incoming connections, screen capturing, and even controlling your desktop through it. So very, very cool. They're also not really... They do say that it does technically support... or should support Windows, but they haven't tested it, so they don't know. And they do say that it does support Mac, but it needs some permissions to work properly on Mac, so keep that in mind if you use Mac for some reason and are watching the show. And they say that it's not compatible with every distribution, but and but it is something that I think is pretty interesting because it is just it's a really cool concept and I love the fact that they the the, per, the guy just wanted to have it and decided I'm going to make it. That's awesome. So the motivation for it was he says that I created this program out of my personal need to be able to do some handwriting on my Linux system. I know I could just have bought a graphic tablet, but as I already have a tablet with a necessary necessary hardware for a note-taking around, I was unwilling to do so. And after quite some time searching fruitlessly for a solution to this problem, Wayless was born, which Wayless means web stylus. So that's where that comes from. I don't know if it's actually Wayless or Wellis or I'm not, I just assume it's Wayless because that's how I would pronounce it. I don't know if that's actually accurate or not, but hey, there you go. It's written in Rust and some C with a tiny bit of TypeScript. So it works by serving a web page that uses the browser API to capture the pen, touch, and mouse events and then sends it from the tablet to your computer so that you can use in that way. Very, very interesting. It has support for uh, deb files for people who use Debian-based distributions. It's also available in Arch via the AUR. So you can check those out pretty quickly um, by using these things. But the uh, I think the deb files are on the GitHub release page. I Pretty sure that's where it is. I don't think it's in any repos because I think it's too new for that. But just a quick note, there are a little bit some issues here. I said that already, but I wanted to clarify what those issues might be. So Waitlist uses WebSockets over HTTP, which kind of means that since it's not HTTPS, means that even if you set a password for who can begin the connection, the session doesn't have encryption so because it's not going over SSL. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean a lot of horrible things because it's a local-based thing, but just so you know that that is something to think about. But at the same time, it is running locally on your computer and on your tablet, so it's not that big of an issue overall. So just wanted to put that out there. But anyway, I think this is an awesome concept for a project, and I uh, thank them for doing it because now I want to take my tablet, which I have right here, and see if I can play with it as a drawing device because that's just awesome. Up next in the show and the last topic for today is Snakeware. So Snakeware is a Linux distribution that is written in Python. It uses Python as the user LAN and this is pretty pretty interesting. So basically when you boot the compu- you boot the distribution, you are boot dire- you booted directly into a Python interpreter and then everything is ran 
through Python. So the developer, Josh Moore, decided his motivation was, or he said that his motivation was, the, uh, the idea is that a Python OS would be fun to use and very easy to contribute to. Even relative beginners might be able to find ways to meaningfully, meaningfully contribute apps and other code to this distribution. He says, for example, the window manager SnakeWM does not use X11. It uses it draws directly to dev slash FB0. And they, they also, they're also not going to be using any other huge or opaque software such as SystemD, they say. The goal is to eventually have a usable set of user space apps and utilities written entirely in Python because Python is fun and it just works. And Python is fun, and it is a really good programming language for beginners because it's probably the best beginner language for people who want to learn programming because it is simplistic but at the same time pretty powerful. So very, very interesting that they're doing a entire distro powered by Python. So there's actually, they say that there are wait, there are Q, uh, QEMU instructions for the installation. It's not really for hardware yet, but they do say that they are making configs for the Raspberry Pi, and those are on the way. So if you would like to run it on your Raspberry Pi, that should be doing somewhat soon or somewhat reasonably soon. So if you are interested for some reason to use Snakeware, a Python userland-based Linux distribution, there you go. Links in the show notes below. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. And also be sure to click that bell so that you get notifications when I release a new episode of the show and all the other content that is coming on the Tux Digital channel. And if you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via Patreon, sponsors, and PayPal, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to destinationlinux.network store to pick it up from the DLN store. In addition to the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt, you can also get this new This Week in Linux t-shirt that I am wearing throughout this episode. So if you'd like to get one of those and support the This Week in Linux podcast, then go to destinationlinux.network store to get one for yourself. And I will also leave that notification of my phone in the recording because, meh. We also have ways to contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, Humble Bundle, and many others by going to tuxdigital.com affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And as in the housekeeping, I talked about the different episodes you should check out. There's quite a few, and there's even another one coming that has a really significant uh, claim that we want you to check out on episode 178 that's coming out. But in episode 176, you get the best beginner distro uh, opinions from us myself and ryan also our picks for the best linux hardware is in episode 177 so go check those out and if you want to learn more about those individual episodes go to the check out the housekeeping section of this podcast episode and learn more about that but yeah go to destinationlinux.org to check out the podcast that is destination linux and I switched the wrong thing, but hey, whatever. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux. And I'll see you next week for another episode of your source for Linux good news.